Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following episode is from Marxist University, a series of discussions held in the fall of 2020 to introduce people to the most fundamental and pressing Marxist ideas. In this talk, Fightback activist Marcus discusses what socialists are fighting for, how might a new society work, in what ways would our individual lives be affected, and what will socialism look like? Yeah, so about a year ago, as we actually noted in our paper at the time, there was a poll conducted by Forum Research that found that 58% of Canadians support socialism. Keep in mind, this was before the COVID pandemic, before the current economic crisis, and before the Black Lives Matter protests we saw spill into Canada. Taking into account the current situation, you can only assume that this number has increased by a lot. Radical ideas are becoming more popular by the day. If your social media feed is anything like mine, you've been seeing people who used to scoff at you for considering yourself a socialist openly call for the abolition of the police. Now, we're experiencing a very exciting development. A revival of socialism is really on the order of the day. The main issue isn't that people are disinterested in socialism. The issue is that when you ask people what socialism is, you'll always get a different answer. For many, it's clear what we're fighting against austerity, police brutality, corruption, and ultimately capitalism, but it can be much harder to picture what we're fighting for. Now, Marxists don't claim to hold a crystal ball. We can't predict with absolute certainty the exact specifics of what socialism will look like, but it's still possible to make out what kind of society we can build out of the ashes of the old. Now, as Marxists, we consider ourselves to be scientific socialists, meaning that we apply a scientific analysis to the development of history and society. In other words, we can make hypotheses about the future based on evidence from the past and present. Now, this is not an exact science, as you cannot have a revolution in laboratory conditions. By looking at capitalism and imagining a new society without the barriers that it imposes, we can see the potential for what socialism could look like. We would be able to structure the economy in a way that doesn't benefit a rich, powerful minority, but humanity as a whole. Now take, for example, just the existence of unemployment. Before the pandemic, you had unemployment of around 174 million people worldwide. Now keep in mind, these are just the official statistics. Depending on how each government tracks unemployment, the actual number is likely much higher. We accept unemployment as a, a given under capitalism, but when you really think about it, it doesn't make any sense to have it. Why, under any economic system, would we have millions of people looking to work, millions of people actively wanting to put labor into society, but being disallowed to do so? It's not as if there's not any work that needs to be done. Just look at how many people are working multiple jobs. In Canada, again, before the pandemic, there were around 101 million people, not 101 million people, working at least two jobs. Now compare this to the two million people who are unemployed. No, I actually remember speaking to a woman at a picket line a few years back who's working three jobs and going to the food bank just so she could support herself and her children. Now, why are things like this? Why is one section of the population overworked while another is entirely prevented from working at all? The answer to that is that the ruling class is always trying to cut costs. 
If they can maintain profits while cutting jobs and wages, they absolutely will. Having a wide labor pool cheapens the price of labor power, which creates a downward pressure on wages and working conditions. If everyone was guaranteed a job, the bosses would, the bosses would have much less bargaining power. It's easier to convince someone to work in less than ideal conditions when you have a crowd of very desperate people just lining up outside. Now, this is completely irrational. We're wasting a ton of productive labor just to keep a few people rich. Now, this brings us to the alternative under socialism. By getting rid of the profit motive, we would be able to get rid of both unemployment and underemployment and lower the amount of working hours for everyone. Everyone would be able to have one job and just one job with decent pay, conditions, and benefits. Now, this was actually partially achieved in the Soviet Union. Despite all its shortcomings, unemployment was unheard of until capitalism was restored. Now, obviously, with the current pandemic, uh, it makes sense to slow down and shut down certain industries, which explains the current surge of unemployment, but it doesn't excuse it. Capitalism is a system built on constant growth, constant expansion. It doesn't have any built-in mechanisms for slowdown. When COVID hit, the only way it could react was through mass layoffs and closures, effectively putting the economic burden for the pandemic on the working class. Now, just look at Apple. They've been going through the pandemic completely unscathed. Even though they've shut down certain locations, they recently became the first $2 trillion company in history. Now, without this kind of corporate greed running society, we would be able to shut down and slow down certain industries in exceptional situations like the one we're currently living in without negatively affecting the people who work in those industries. Now, everywhere you look, this is a common theme on really every layer of capitalism. We have generalized poverty under a system that produces plenty. Food waste is a perfect example. Now, according to the UN, we waste 1.3 billion tons of food per year. Here in Canada, we waste nearly 60% of all the food we produce, which is 35.5 million tons. Going into the pandemic, you saw Canadian dairy farmers literally dumping milk into the ground because markets were unfavorable. We're tossing enough food to literally feed entire countries, while hundreds of millions of people are starving. Now, if this doesn't convince you that capitalism is a dead end, I really don't know what could. We could also point to homelessness. Canada has 5.5 empty homes for every homeless person in the country. That same number in Toronto is seven. We don't have a shortage of houses. We actually have an overabundance. Canada has the largest housing bubble ever recorded by a G7 country. While people are forced to live on the streets and in shoddy housing, private contractors are pumping billions a year into luxury condos that will never be filled. The ultimate cruelty of this is that when the real estate market eventually crashes, this overinflation means people who can't afford their mortgages and won't be able to refinance will end up losing their homes, making homelessness an even bigger issue. Capitalism is the only economic system ever where homelessness caused by too many houses has even been a conceivable issue. We're told that the free market is the most efficient economic system, but that's simply untrue. Capitalism gives way to unparalleled amounts of waste while millions, if not billions of people, struggle to scrape by. Under socialism, we wouldn't have the same problem anymore. We'd be able to structure the economy on a democratic planned basis 
and rationally allocate resources as they're needed. Poverty under capitalism is for the most part entirely artificial. The fact that we have more empty homes and wasted food than we have starving, impoverished people is an absolute absurdity. We see this waste in every corner of the capitalist economy. We're told that competition is the secret to efficiency, but this isn't entirely true. Work is constantly duplicated between different businesses performing identical functions, meaning that time and money is invested multiple times towards the exact same purpose. Now take supermarkets, for example. How many grocery stores are there in Canada alone that carry essentially the exact same products of the exact same quality at the exact same price? Inside these grocery stores, how many different brands of peanut butter, you know, canned tomatoes are there with the exact same ingredients that are only distinguished by their packaging? How many differently colored bags of plain flour do we really need? We would be able to greatly reduce waste and cost if we centralized these kinds of services. When it comes to technological innovation, trade secrets and intellectual property rights mean that the best ideas aren't pursued as fully as they could be. Instead of the world's best and brightest minds being employed together to produce a thing that society needs, they're split up into different corporations and set against one another, resulting in completely unnecessary duplication of effort and resources. In certain cases, companies actually encourage obsolete technology when it can be profitable. Look at Apple with planned obsolescence. They purposely slow down old versions of the iPhone when a new version comes out just to make sure everyone comes lining up to buy it. Most important scientific research hasn't come out of uh, competition, but through collaboration. Uh, think about the Manhattan Project. Did the U.S. government rally together the country's top scientists and have them compete against each other to see who could build the atom bomb first? No, that'd be ridiculous. It was a fully collaborative project that was only successful because it was collaborative. This is further proven by the success of the Soviet space program. Now, of course, uh, America gets all the credit for having landed on the moon, but it's no coincidence that every milestone before that was achieved by the Soviets. First satellite, first animal in space, first person in space, first spacewalk, all the USSR. The capitalists themselves are actually completely aware of this, and they implement these same principles within individual corporations. Now, just take Texas Instruments, for example. Control is centralized heavily in their main headquarters, which manages regional and global analysis of standardizes product designs internationally and globally coordinates research, development, and pricing. While this is obviously only one example, these practices remain common in more or less every major corporation. Now, if you want an example in the opposite direction, take Sears. You know, in 2013, you saw a man by the name of Eddie Lampert become CEO. Lampert is a self-described libertarian and a big fan of Ayn Rand. He thought he could improve efficiency by implementing free market principles within the company. He restructured things by having individual firms competing against each other within Sears. As a result, he decimated the company. In just five years, Sears lost half of its value and was forced to close half of its locations. Only 95 stores are expected to remain open through the pandemic. Frankly, Marxists don't need to prove the viability of central planning because the capitalists do that just fine by themselves. All the most successful companies institute 
an incredible level of planning and coordination, while any CEO dumb enough to try and break from that ends up sinking. But between these multinationals remains the inefficiency of the market, which leads to enormous waste on a societal level. Now here we see the seed of a new society A socialist economy would embrace the possibilities that would come with fully planned production. The first step towards this would be the expropriation of the commanding heights of the economy, that is, the land, banks, utilities, infrastructure, and the largest companies, all to be placed under democratic control of the working class. Now, the actual effectiveness of a planned economy can be seen in the transformation of Russia after 1917. Now, again, despite all the horrors and bureaucratic mismanagement of Stalinism, the Soviet Union made absolutely unparalleled gains in the realm of production. In the span of a few decades, they jumped from feudal backwardness to being the second most powerful country on earth. From 1917 to 1963, industrial times in the USA and two in Britain. In that same period, productivity of labor rose by 1,310% as against 332 in the USA and only 73% in Britain. Life expectancy doubled and child mortality fell nine times. The country had more doctors per 100,000 people than any of Italy, Austria, West Germany, the US, Britain, France, Netherlands, and Sweden. Now, if all of this was achieved, in 20th century Russia, which was devastated by two world wars, a civil war, and held back by the Stalinist dictatorship and the pressures of world imperialism, imagine what could be achieved in a democratically planned economy in the advanced capitalist world today. Having an actual plan for production would shorten the working week without resulting in loss of pay. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this would come immediately with the rational distribution of labor but would be increased by technological innovation. The potential for this is proven in agriculture. The amount of people farming today is a fraction of what it was in the 1900s, yet we produce way more food just as a result of new technology. Capitalism certainly has provided the way for productive development up to a certain point, but there is a limit to that. Machines don't buy products, so if capitalists want to sell, they need to make sure enough people are employed to buy. This means that automation isn't pursued as fully as it could be, because if it were, there wouldn't be enough buyers on the market. Like, you know, you're really telling me that we can put people in a space, uh, but McDonald's doesn't have the capability to create a fully automated dishwasher. Likewise, under capitalism, automation results in layoffs, which makes technology seem like this scary thing when it should be in everyone's best interest. Without profit in the way, machines could be created to do the jobs no one else wants to, which would give people more leisure time. Now, Marxists are often asked what would be the incentive to work in a social society. Obviously, the incentive under capitalism is to make money so we can eat and pay rent. This is why people demand the freedom to work, to be able to live. Socialism, by contrast, is about freedom from work. The incentive to work under socialism would be to develop an economy that frees us from the necessity of labor. Now, that doesn't mean money incentive would immediately stop being a thing, you know, because people would still need convincing to do particularly 
difficult or unpleasant jobs. But the gap between the highest and lowest paying jobs would be greatly decreased. As we further develop the economy and rise the standards of living for everybody, these gaps themselves will become increasingly irrelevant. Money just isn't a motivating factor anymore if everything is already free. Now, socialism would give us a real stake in the economy. Work will therefore have a more direct purpose than just scraping together enough to get by. Money would stop being the primary motivating factor for work because the work itself would have a clear, direct benefit to ourselves and the people around us. This idea that people are only motivated by immediate financial gain is, is, is really insane to me. You know, if that were true, why would anyone ever have hobbies? Why would anyone ever do unpaid political or charity work? I'm, I'm sure as hell not getting paid anything to talk to you guys tonight, unless anyone wants to pay me, but you know, that's kind of besides the point. The general rule, at least in my life, is that work tends to be a necessary distraction from most people's real passions. I don't know many people who would turn down their dream job if it only came down to pay. Now, based on that same idea, money itself would eventually begin to wither away. In the early days of the planned economy, money would still exist, but its role would be completely transformed. It would no longer serve as a means of class oppression but a simple tool of accounting. We'd be able to track the flow of money in order to properly allocate resources. Gradually, as we further and further incorporate more of the economy into central planning, commodity exchange would diminish, meaning money would cease to serve any real purpose. Now money wouldn't be abolished, it would organically exhaust its own usefulness. And we take a similar approach in relation to the state. Now, this, the state will be dealt, dealt with in further detail in tomorrow night's event on the police. I, I really recommend people go to that, but it does warrant some kind of discussion here. From a Marxist point of view, the state is a tool of class oppression. Simply put, in our society, it's used to reaffirm the power of the capitalists. It's not some neutral tool of governing at all. It has very real class interests. This is why the government seems to be constantly cutting social spending at our expense. This is why the police spend so much time antagonizing poor working class people, especially people of color. A socialist revolution would flip this on its head. The state would be put in the power of the working class to protect working class interests. Under capitalism, the state defends the interests of minority, but under socialism, it would protect the interests of the overwhelming majority. The worker state would introduce wide, consistent democracy. Uh, that's simply impossible under capitalism. All, affected, all elected officials would be subject to the right of recall. They would be rotated. Uh, oh, they would be paid no more than a worker's wage, and administrative tasks would be regularly rotated as a strike against state bureaucracy. The planned economy would greatly reduce the size and power of the state to begin with. You know, under capitalism, the vast majority of crime, laws, court cases, you know, so on, revolve around private property rights. Uh, it doesn't take an expert to say that you don't need a massive body to manage private property when there is no private property. In a similar vein, socialism would get rid of the motivating factors for most other crimes. Petty crimes like theft are directly proportional to poverty. Under socialism, we'd be able to take real and immediate steps against poverty and its causes. As socialism develops even further, class divisions themselves would disappear and the state as a whole would eventually become unnecessary. 
Now, although the Soviet Union experienced a deep authoritarian degeneration in its early days, it very clearly reflected these democratic principles. Now, as the name implies, the state was organized, excuse me, at its base levels through the Soviets, which was just the Russian name for these democratic councils in which workers were elected as representatives to run their workplaces and localities. This kind of a method is much closer to the working class than capitalist democracy, because it gives people more immediate control over their lives in a way that parliamentary politics can never do. Just take a look at the ongoing election in the United States. The American working class is forced to pick between two candidates that are practically identical. Two inarticulate racist men, both accused of sexual assault by multiple women, both who paint themselves as the pro-police law and order candidates, both steadily declining in cognitive function, and both who represent capitalist parties. For ordinary people to genuinely, genuinely participate in government, they need to have the time to do so. Under capitalism, the length of the working week and the pressures of day-to-day -day life mean that the majority of people are excluded from political activities. If you already have a, a full-time job and family obligations, it's difficult to even stay well-informed about politics, let alone participate directly. Lenin himself wrote extensively about the need to shorten the working day in order to allow working class people the time to manage government. Now, there's also the question, the very important question of how you can even have any kind of democracy in a society with class divisions to begin with. You know, obviously the theory is one person, one vote, but it's very clear that some votes are more influential than others. The average voter doesn't have millions of dollars to support a political campaign with. The average voter doesn't have money to bribe politicians with. Plus, you know, liberals always speak of democracy in politics, but never in the economy. How can we speak of freedom when our workplaces are run as dictatorships? Capitalism runs entirely counter to any kind of genuine democracy. Now, the essence of socialist democracy on the other hand, is the ability for society to actually implement the decisions it makes. This is another fundamental barrier in capitalism. Even if voters decide in favor of demands like full employment and investment in this or that sector, how can they be carried out in practice when all real economic decisions lie in the hands of bankers and bosses? In a similar vein, many of the so-called checks and balances of liberal democracy are actually completely undemocratic. We can see this in the splitting up of legislative and executive branches of government. Parliament serves as a space where politicians can kind of blow hot air, while the real decisions are being made behind the scenes by high-level bureaucrats. Socialism would abolish the limits imposed on democracy by private property. Decisions would be made by elected, accountable, working-class officials who would also be responsible for implementing and enforcing those decisions. Working class people would also have the direct power of running their day-to-day -day operation of their workplaces however they see best. In the process of, of building socialist democracy, we would eventually see the withering away of national lines. The nation state is, a, is purely a product of capitalism and in many cases was devised in completely arbitrary ways. Look at the third world. Most national borders in Asia, Africa, and Latin America were drawn up by the whim 
of European imperialists. For example, there was no Nigeria before colonization. It's a country made up of literally hundreds of different languages and ethnic groups. In fact, there are more languages spoken in Nigeria alone than all of Europe. Yet the borders of Nigeria pay no mind to the historical territories of these languages and ethnic groups. There was no historical basis for Nigeria to be a country until colonization. Today, the nation state is a barrier to the development of production in that it prompts capitalists of different countries to fight for their own interests at the expense of the world economy. We've seen this especially clearly in recent months through the pandemic. Had there been an internationally coordinated plan to respond to COVID, we could have prevented a full-blown pandemic, or at the very least, we could have heavily mitigated it. Instead, we saw the exact opposite. Nation after nation turned inwards and attempted to deal with it at the expense of other countries. Opposing imperialist powers like the US and China have each attempted to blame one another for the virus. In countries like India, the spread of COVID has been used to scapegoat certain minority groups. You also have the phenomena of countries turning toward protectionism the second COVID presented any kind of real threat. When Italy, was still the hardest hit country. Fellow European Union countries like Germany and France just flat out refused to export masks to them. Now the very creation of free trade zones like the EU are an admission by the ruling class that economic development requires the dismantling of national borders. While capitalism is forced to embrace this reality half-heartedly, socialism would realize it to its fullest degree. Socialism is a system that unites the working class across borders and tears down national barriers and competition between states. This doesn't mean a destruction of local differences in culture. Having different regions united within one state would not destroy their individuality. It simply destroys artificial divisions between people. Uh, if anything, culture would flourish under socialism. Artists wouldn't be forced to confine themselves to the market. Creativity would be allowed to dominate. Likewise, the abolition of capitalism would also mean the abolition of national oppression, which would allow national and local cultures to exist completely undisturbed. Now, ultimately, this would mean the implementation of an internationally planned economy. We already spoke about the viability of the planned economy in regards to the USSR, but for a more modern example, we could take a look at Cuba. Cuba has one of the strongest healthcare systems in the world, they're leading scientific research in some incredibly important medical fields, including for the hunt for an HIV vaccine. Throughout the pandemic, they've been sending medical aid globally, including to advanced capitalist countries like Italy. And this is all in one very tiny, very poor country in the Caribbean. If the planned economy is this ferociously powerful in even impoverished nations, the potential for an internationally planned economy is almost incomprehensible. It would give birth to an incredible period of human development unlike anything we've ever seen before in history. And this is what makes the fight for socialism such a necessary goal. It's not just the fight against oppression and exploitation, even though that's an essential component to it. At its core, it's the fight for the advancement of the human race. If the, the capitalist class is a parasite that drains humanity of much of its potential, without the barriers of private ownership and profit, society would be able to develop to the fullest. 
We're not just fighting for increased wages or more funding into this or that social service, but for a fundamental reconstitution of society as a whole. Now, there are, of course, people who are going to call this utopian. But what I think is really utopian is this idea that we can keep living like this. Capitalism is coming apart at the seams as we speak. It's an irrational, backward, inhuman system that has outlived all historical justification. It's a system that relies on keeping hundreds of millions of people trapped into horrific poverty and making sure that the rest of us are constantly on the verge. It's a system that inevitably gives rise to economic crises and the mass social turmoil that comes along with that. For these reasons, at some point or another, it must come to an end. Since we live under the pressures of capitalism, it's easy to feel like there won't ever come an escape, but that's simply not true. No previous system has been able to withstand its own inner contradictions forever, and capitalism is no different. The only question is what will come next, socialism or barbarism? In this regard, Marxism provides us with the absolute best way forward. It's the only theory we have at our disposal to thoroughly analyze capitalism and use that analysis to sketch an image of what a socialist society could look like. All that we need is an apparatus that can transcribe this image into reality, which is exactly what we're trying to build here today. More and more people everywhere are turning against this decrepit system, which has given rise to the mass movements we've seen in countries like Lebanon, Sudan, Haiti, and Ecuador, even in the United States, which is supposed to be the strongest capitalist country on earth, millions have been taken to the streets. If there was a powerful enough revolutionary leadership in any of these countries, there would have been enough momentum to build socialism 10 times over. As long as we maintain the perspective of building this leadership, the odds weigh heavily in our favor. Capitalism is not the all-powerful system it once was. It's teetering right on the edge. All that we have to do is give it the right kind of push. So if these ideas appeal to you and you want to be part of the fight for a new society, I very much encourage you to join us. Socialism is not going to build itself. History is on our side, but sometimes history needs a little bit of a guiding hand. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this alone. So if you agree with us, get involved. You can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Lupus. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode is General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. It can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.